I think we're witnessing a process which is an assault. And um, it calls on all of us who care about international law to push back because I think the outcome is unclear. Whether the order is imperiled, I think, I think, I think the answer is no, it's not imperiled. I think things are changing. And I think they were changing before Trump. We're at a turning point. Um, and it's very hard to know which direction it's going to go. I think that we're certainly at a stage um, where we have, if you like, the car in reverse. Many of us have been critical, and I think uh, the chickens have come home to roost. I'm Catherine Amirfar. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law, Law Behind, Behind the headlines. headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Hello, and welcome to the first edition of International Law Behind the Headlines. I'm Catherine Amirfar, and I'm here with Cal Rustiala. We'll be co-hosting International Law Behind the Headlines, a series produced by ASIL that will dive into international law issues dominating the headlines. Most of our episodes will be interviews with a single guest, but for our inaugural podcast, we wanted to tackle something bigger with a diverse array of leading voices in international law. We're kicking off the series with a meta question that we've posed to five leading figures in international law. Is the post-World War II international legal system being dismantled? In this first episode, we sat down with professors Harold Coe, Ona Hathaway, and Dapo Akande. We're starting the episode with Professor Coe, who's the Sterling Professor of International Law at Yale. He's the former legal advisor of the State Department and former Assistant Secretary of Human Rights. And we begin with our big question. So let's let's get basic quick. Harold, are we experiencing currently what I would call a dismantling of the system of the rule of law, uh, the international system that has existed since the Second World War, which, as you know, the U.S. had a major hand uh, in creating? What do you think about that? Where are we today? Um, well, dismantling is a conclusion or an outcome. I think we're witnessing a process which is an assault. And um, it calls on all of us who care about international law to push back because I think the outcome is unclear. I mean, I think there are two competing models of global governance. Um, we saw them during the Cold War, but they're even in sharper relief now. The world in which I've always believed is the Kantian vision of global governance uh, based on uh, Kant's own pamphlet toward perpetual peace, which, uh, unlike the uh, cartoon version presented by others, is, it's not world government. It's not black helicopters. It is uh, law-abiding states cooperating in the zone of law to achieve uh, smart power results. And I think at the end of the day, that's what Obama, Bill Clinton, before him pushed for. I think that's what Hillary Clinton would have pushed for. Uh, the alternative vision is a Orwellian vision of spheres of influence uh, in which uh, things change on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, there's fake news. Um, uh, people are uh, misled by their leaders. And then there are deals cut at a power level between uh, autocrats uh, or people with autocratic tendencies. We certainly have Xi Jinping now. Uh, looks like he's headed for lifelong presidency. 
uh, Vladimir Putin, who has enjoyed remarkable success. Um, and then we have Donald Trump, who is part actor, part dupe, and uh, attempting to implement these mechanisms in our zone. And then we have a challenge in Europe because of the collapse of, uh, or the, ch the challenges to the European Union and uh, Brexit, et cetera. And through it all, uh, an incapacity to deal with the, the crisis in Syria. So uh, I think uh, what it calls for from civil society and um, academia, um, the Inv Invisible College of International Lawyers in the Kantian space is a systematic uh, effort to push back. And I think we're seeing that push back in the travel ban case, sanctuary cities, DACA DAPA, uh, on climate change, we're still in um, fighting against breaking the Iran nuclear deal, uh, pushing against hard power solutions in North Korea, um, trying to expose Putin's adventurism. We have a, a new round of um, trade war uh, of uh, the kind that we learned back at Smoot Hawley was uh, entirely destructive and um, um, at some point, you would think that this fragile coalition between Trump and the Republicans should break. You know, we, we have a coalition government in the United States. It's just it doesn't lose authority uh, on a parliamentary basis because it, it's a four-year term. But I think um, my own view of this, which I've expressed in an article in a forthcoming book, is that we're essentially playing rope-a-dope right now. As, as Muhammad Ali would say. Uh, the problem with rope-a-dope is, or the good part of it, is um, you absorb the punishment and um, let the other side get worn out. You know, Trump has had uh, a zillion failures, uh, not the least of which you can't hold the government together, can't hold senior officials. Uh, he's issued a bunch of executive orders. He's accomplished virtually nothing. Um, the downside of a rope-a-dope strategy is the person being battered gets worn out too. <laughs> and that's the attack on structure that you're seeing, the, the attack on a, a vision. Um, and um, I refuse to believe that it's being dismantled. Uh, I, I, but I think that uh, it's certainly under direct challenge and threat in a way that I have not seen in my lifetime. Harold, have you been surprised by the the fragility of the international institutions, international structures that have been built, or would you characterize them after all this experience as resilient? What do you think is the real story? I think they're both fragile and resilient. Um, in that, um, I mean, they're they're human constructs. Uh, human constructs can disappear. Um, I mean, just just look around us. Uh, law firms can disappear. Companies can disappear. Um, countries can disappear. A any human created entity, a marriage, um, a family, if it's not cultivated and maintained, can, can weaken and fall apart. Which is why maintaining those institutions and maintaining those relationships is a daily chore. It's like, you know, tending your garden. Um, I'm actually, you know, I, I, I'm inspired by what I see. You know, look at Macron um, saying to Trump, we're going to uh, link trade initiatives with compliance with the Paris climate deal, 
which is, you know, two can play this game. Um, you know, you may not figure out what you've decided to do, uh, but, um, you know, we're not going to... We do not believe that Donald Trump owns um, climate. It's uh, We're still in. You know, we'll always have Paris. That's that perspective. And um, I think... Uh, um, a powerful vision uh, can defeat a less powerful vision. So let, let's take a step back. Um, why are we here at this moment of history? You've mentioned Donald Trump, the United States. You've mentioned Brexit. You've mentioned Macron. So it's is it, are these outlier situations? Or are we looking at a trend, whether you call it populism or whatever it is? Is there a trend here, or are these outliers? Well, I think there are pendulum swings. Uh, you know, we, we haven't had the kind of consistent foreign policy that you have. You know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, president for four terms. Um, you can have a fair amount of consistency of policy. Um, I do think uh, the uh, inability to deal uh, and develop political capital to deal with the uh, uh, Arab awakening led to the meltdown in Libya and the meltdown in Syria. And the meltdown in Syria led to a stunning refugee crisis, and that led to uh, others who could be blamed throughout Central and Eastern Europe. It led to Brexit, and it captured a, a mood um, that Trump was able to capitalize on. And uh, But, you know, the same group of the same country that elected Obama elected Trump and the same people and you see them on the streets uh, couldn't elect the person who will take it in the opposite direction um, but what's happened now is is uh, uh, popular movements are linking up with legal movements in a way that we have not seen I, I do think there's a powerful impact on the young people uh, uh, the young people in the UK took Brexit for granted. The young people in America can't believe that they've got a 17-year-old bigot um, uh, driving policy uh, based on uh, anti-gay sentiment, anti-immigrant sentiment. They're smarter than that. You know, they go to school with people and they know that they're human beings. They, they won't accept that. And I, I think it's a very powerful moment for this group to assert itself and take back their country. You know, after all, they're the ones who are seeing the snowstorms and from the polar vortex in April and um, uh, the sea level rising. And um, uh, they're the ones who recognize that nobody's interested in coal uh, or, or uh, hydrocarbons anymore as a way to run things. And I, I just think that um, that group will uh, be important leaders. But we need popular movements, we need politics, uh, we need scholarship, and we need uh, legal action. Well, I would say that we're at a turning point, um, and it's very hard to know which direction it's going to go. This is Professor Ona Hathaway, Professor of International Law at Yale Law School and former Special Counsel to the General Counsel at the U.S. Department of Defense, uh, who shared her, op her observations on the same question. Um, certainly, there are many warning signs that we see where, uh, of course, have to be deeply concerned about the attacks on various international institutions, the World Trade Organization, uh, 
various other trade agreements, NAFTA, uh, the TPP. Um, but at the same time, we see the resilience of the of, of these institutions. Um, they seem to be withering. Uh, 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 they're they're weathering the attacks pretty successfully thus far. Um, but whether they will continue to weather those attacks um, over a significant period of time, I think is harder for us to tell. So, you know, I think that they've proven themselves to be robust for the for the time being. Um, but they're not going to be able to stand up to these attacks for all that long. Um, and I think part of the question is not only whether the attacks continue, but what states do to respond to them um, and how uh, other states uh, respond to the ongoing assault, not only by the United States on some of the institutions that it um, helped create and that uh, it has nurtured over the last 60, 70 years, uh, but uh, but also the uh, harm that's being done by Russia, by China, by other some of the big players in the system. Um, but we also at the same time see states pushing back. Um, and so I think we haven't yet seen how that's all going to play out, and I remain hopeful. When you say pushing back, you mean to preserve the existing order? There, yes, exactly, to preserve the existing order. So I mean, you see states um, uh, resisting the pull um, of the U.S. away from these international organizations. Um, even, uh, interestingly, China um, using the uh, tools available to it under international law to respond to the ways in which the United States is kind of pulling back from uh, international trade, um, the way in which China is uh, doing as it's legally entitled to responding to uh, the U.S.'s uh, threats to put in place sanctions uh, or tariffs on steel and aluminum. Um, you know, China is working through the international institutions to respond to that, and, and actually that's kind of an interesting and hopeful sign. Um, and the fact that in some cases it has caused the U.S. to back off, um, not in the case of China, but the fact that uh, the EU is getting preparing to put together a whole package of sanctions in response to the steel tariffs, uh, that the United States was putting in, planning to put in place, uh, and um, and the U.S. backed off um, and put took uh, the EU off of the list, as it did many other countries who are similarly gearing up to respond. So there there are ways in which states are responding to these challenges. I, before the last few years, um, the way in which states responded to Russia's invasion of Crimea and seizure of Crimea. Uh, the massive sanctions that were put in place in response to that. And those continue to hold, at least for now. The EU continues to hold uh, to those sanctions. The U.S. is continuing to hold to those sanctions. So so there are lots of hopeful signs, um, even amidst the worrying ones. Um, and uh, and I think, again, it's going to be a question of kind of what the balance of those is and, and whether we see a continued defense of the international legal order or whether we see a kind of gradual slide further and further away from these institutions. You know, and, and the question is going to be, like, do we come around? You know, the Trump administration is constantly shifting. It's always hard to know exactly where it's going to be on these questions. With personnel changes come big changes in policy, and there's obviously lots of infighting going on in the administration. So it's hard to know how consistent this policy is going to be. You know, in a year, is it still going to be the same as it is today? In two years, is it going to be the same? Um, harder to know. Obviously, I hope um, that it's not. I fear that it might be worse. Even if we had a change, let's say even before the end of his first term, but let's say 
it, it takes a few more years and he's out and some, let's assume a Democrat is in, or even a Republican who is more traditional in their foreign policy orientation. How much do you think, and I'm particularly interested in your DOD experience with regard to, let's say, NATO and our NATO allies or any other of our treaty allies, how much do you think our credibility has been harmed in those treaty commitments such that we've we've engendered an entire set of reactions and counter-reactions that will be impossible to kind of fix? I think that our credibility has been really hurt. Um, and, and some of that is irreparable. I, I think that people understand better, people outside the U.S. understand better than they did um, that um, so much is contingent on who is leading um, and that the American public is willing to vote for someone who um, isn't willing to play by the ordinary rules of the system. Um, and I think that was a shock to the rest of the world. I don't think people expected that. And and the last administration had rightly been doing a lot of work to try and reassure um, allies that you know, policy wasn't going to radically shift and, you know, that we were going to stay fast to the Iran nuclear deal, for instance, and that we were going to stay fast to a lot of the commitments that we've made. And and for any of these international organizations to work, states have to be able to make credible commitments, not just over a four-year span, but over a 10, 15, 20-year span. And I think that this pullback has raised fears among allies that they can't necessarily count on the United States to stick to its deals for the long term. And I think that's going to that is going to do harm no matter, you know, even if you have somebody back in office who's really committed um, to repairing the harm that's been done, they'll be able to repair a lot of that harm. But I think that there's probably um, some of that that we're never we're never going to get back fully. Um, and that's that's a real pity. Now, the question is what happens as a result of that? Do other states think, okay, now we need to step up. We can't rely on the United States to always be the one that's sort of the adult in the room. Um, we are going to have to play a more central role in helping to maintain and construct the international legal order. Like that's the hopeful result of this, is that other states step up to the plate. The worrisome um, alternatives that people retreat into nationalism. And of the various uh, actions that Trump has taken or considerations, so for example, we're renegotiating NAFTA in a sense, TPP, that was probably going to happen no matter what, um, questioning our NATO commitments. Are there any of those that you support? So in other words, do you, can you find something positive in what he has done that you think will have positive effects down the road for us and for the system more broadly? One question that he asks that he's not the only one to have asked this question is, um, where are our allies? Um, you know, where is everybody else when it comes to playing the role for supporting the international legal order and making it work? Um, and I do think, um, you know, it made a lot of sense and it was necessary after World War II for the United States to really be the one who carried the burden of creating these international institutions and supporting them and funding them and standing them up and, and uh, manning them. You know, all of that made a lot of sense. That was important. To really, the U.S. was the only uh, nation that was capable of doing that. We're at a different time now where other states really should play a more significant role. And, and I do think that while I don't agree with the way that Trump puts it, um, I think that there is a argument to be made that the U.S. has, in playing an outsized role, um, maybe discouraged other states from doing their part. Um, and, you know, if something good could come out of this, it could be that other states recognize, look, we can't always rely on the United States to always be the one that's willing to kind of 
be the one making this work. Um, we have to make it work too. We also sat down with Professor Dabo Okande, Professor of Public International Law at the University of Oxford, for his perspective from the UK. I think that we're certainly at a stage um, where we have, if you like, the car in reverse. Um, since the end of the Second World War, the international community has been trying and I think successfully been building what's commonly described as a rules-based system. And from 1945 till now, I think for the most part, the car has been moving forwards on that project. Um, I think we're at a place where we're probably very far from where the framers of the post-1945 system, where they wanted us to be, the vision that they had. Um, but we've, generally speaking, had a forward momentum. At this point in history, it looks like for the first time in the last 70 years, it's a backward momentum in the sense that we are going back from places where we have been before. So to take specific examples across different areas of international law, we see states withdrawing from several treaty regimes, whether that is um, states withdrawing from the, the statute of the International Criminal Court, as, as uh, Burundi has done, as the Philippines has given notice that it's going to do, whether it's states taking steps backwards, withdrawing from the system relating to um, the protection of international investment, so withdrawing from the ICSID convention, attempting to bring to an end the sort of investor state dispute settlement system, whether that is the US taking steps in relation to the WTO to, to effectively, if you like, sort of dismantle the, the, the dispute settlement system. Across the range of areas in international law, there seems to be a backward momentum. Having said all of that, I do think that we need to put it all in perspective, particularly if we're thinking about it from 1945 to now. Actually, we don't have to go that far back to see that even today, and even with this backward momentum, we are much further forward than we were even just a couple of decades ago in so many different areas of, of international law. And so if you think, for example, about um, international adjudication as a means of resolving disputes in international law, the position today in 2018 is completely different from the position that we had even in the mid-1990s. We're so much further forward uh, than we were. So you look at the, the docket of the International Court of Justice, it's full. You look at the range of international tribunals that we have, whether that's in the criminal sphere, whether that's in the area of, of trade, there's so much, whether that's even in the area of human rights, the law of the sea, there's so much that is happening now in terms of an attempt to resolve disputes on the basis of law and through a judicial or arbitral process, which was not happening just 25 years ago. So the basic point that I would make is that the position today, 2018, looks worse than what we would have imagined five years ago. But if we're looking from the perspective of even 25 years ago, we're probably in a better step, uh, a better place than, than we were then. You've talked about 
backward momentum. And as you aptly put it, we're in a car in reverse. I guess that implies that in your view, there could be a recurrence of a forward momentum, a more, more of the progressive uh, uh, momentum towards going back to some of these international legal systems that it, it appears that at least some countries are abandoning. Now, is that right? Is that premise correct? Or do you think we're watching a system get broken so that while we may be okay or better or worse now than we were five years ago, even if we're better now than we were 25 years ago, what do you think is going to happen 10 years from now? Yeah, so that's the real, that is really the real question. You know, there's a backward momentum, but are we going to carry on going backwards such that actually we, we, we're at a stage where we're even worse than we were, say, 25 years ago, worse than we were during the Cold War? I mean, of course, if you compare the position now to the position in the Cold War, we're still much further forward. But the risk is that we can go even further further backwards. Um, so what I would say is, I mean, the first message that I already made, which was that we're in a better place. However, we need to be aware of the fact that there is backward momentum and, and we need to think about ways of addressing that such that um, we're not going, you know, so that the backward momentum doesn't accelerate if, if that's the best way to, if, you know, to carry on with that, with that analogy. Um, and that requires, I think, concerted action clearly at the political level, but also in terms of our institutions as a matter of law to kind of think about some of the issues that have been, that have been raised. And what I see is that, um, so we have, you know, we have developments in, in, in politics today, the rise of populism, which is almost inconsistent with a system of international law because it's a rise of populism that is premised on the idea of, if you like, popular sovereignty and nationalism at an extreme. And that almost seems to be inconsistent with a, a system whereby states would constrain themselves and accept the authority of international law. So that's one, one challenge. A second challenge, actually, that, we, that I think we face is that with many of the institutions that we have, maybe we were actually a little bit too enthusiastic. Maybe too enthusiastic is not quite the right word. Maybe we just need to assess where we, we were with some of these institutions. And maybe some of these challenges are challenges that we should not dismiss out of hand. We need to, in the light of the experience that we have had over the last 20, 25 years, take a look, fine-tune, and see whether there are actually better ways of, of um, reimagining these institutions. So when you're speaking about concerted political action, uh, including perhaps fine-tuning some of these institutions, let me ask you this. If you had two minutes with Theresa May, what would you say to her? The case of the UK is very specific, isn't it, in the sense that at the moment everything is consumed by, by Brexit. And so the UK is probably in a slightly different place because on the one hand, you know, the UK um, is disengaging from the very specific system of, of the European Union. But actually, on the other hand, that means that the UK has to engage with the broader international law uh, system. So, for example, just to take a very simple example with, with the UK, the fact that the UK has been in the EU, which has competence for international trade, means that 
there is there has been very little discussion and development of expertise in the UK in relation to the global trading system, the WTO. Now that we're coming out of the EU, we going to have to develop that expertise and we're trying to develop that expertise very quickly. So there's actually, in one perverse sense, an opportunity here in the UK for re-engaging with parts of international law that we haven't um, engaged with more generally. But if we take the UK out of, um, out of the picture and we think just more generally about what one might say to, to world leaders or one, what one might say actually to, to sort of national constituencies. Um, it's trying to, I think, emphasize the message that though there is and there appears to be a loss of, of control by accepting international rules, by joining international institutions, the way that the world is today means that actually, in reality, in many cases, one has more control when one is acting together with international partners. One has more control over events. One has more control over one's destiny by accepting the opportunity to work with international partners than one might otherwise have. So just to take one example, which is an example that I suppose this example applies in the UK, but it applies elsewhere. There's a concern about immigration all over the world. And I think we have to, you know, just pay attention to that. We have to think about that and say, well, you know, domestic constituencies are concerned about um, immigration and they're concerned about people coming into their, into their, into their countries. But actually, what's the best way to manage a system of immigration? Is it by withdrawing from international institutions and thinking that you can do it on your own? Or is it by designing international systems and international rules? I think that the message that says, if you're concerned, for example, about immigration and about having a managed system of migration, the best and the most effective way to do that is actually by having international agreements. I think that message hasn't really been, been heard. And we see in so many countries, including in the UK, that when countries try to do it on their own, they actually find that with globalization, it is almost impossible to do it on your own. People arrive and they will be on your territory. Unless you find ways of managing it globally, it's going to be very hard to do it by yourself. So that's the kind of message that I think um, would both meet the concerns that people might have, but would also um, would also try to show what international law does and what and how the international legal system might help to um, to kind of meet those concerns about a loss of control. Thank you to our guests, Professor Harold Coe, Ona Hathaway, and Dapo Okande. In the next episode, we'll hear two very different perspectives or assessments of the current moment. If you like the podcast, please look for International Law Behind the Headlines on iTunes.